Hello and welcome back to the Biomes podcast with me as always, Dr. Ruri Robertson. Uh, if you are listening in again, uh, thanks very much for listening to me yet again. Uh, and if this is your first time listening, then thanks for listening in. And I'd encourage you to listen to the first two episodes that I've already published, um, where we spoke about brains and biomes and probiotic biomes, because they were really interesting discussions, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, no more so than this week and in the coming weeks as well, where I've lots of different discussions with some of the best scientists in the world researching the human microbiome. So if you like the podcast and you're listening in every week, then I'd really ask you if you could share it and like it and rate it if you're listening on iTunes and share and follow if you're listening on Spotify or send it to your friends and share it on social media um, because it really helps get the, the word out there and get more people listening. So this week we are discussing one of the hottest topics in the field of the microbiome at the moment, uh, if not a bit nauseating, which is uh, fecal microbiome transplants. Uh, if you know what it already is, um, then you'll know about the wonders of, of FMT, as they're called, and if you don't, then uh, you might be intrigued by the, by the name alone. So if you don't know, a, a FMT, or fecal microbiome transplant, uh, does exactly what it sounds like it does. Uh, it is transplanting the gut microbiome of a healthy person into that of a diseased person in the form of a stool sample. Uh, now, of course, this only happens in very uh, rare cases at the moment, but it's been trialed in lots of different disease states. So in FMT, uh, it's usually conducted in people with a really nasty recurrent infection uh, called Clostroides difficile infection. And this uh, is a really debilitating condition that really can cause a huge burden on, on many people's lives uh, throughout the world, mainly in older people. And it can be caused uh, by a number of regions, but reasons, but it's usually picked up in hospitals. Uh, following antibiotic use normally. When a person may be more susceptible to picking up an infection, especially if they're in hospital because their uh, commensal microbiome is depleted. And C. diff kills tens of thousands of people every year. Uh, around 15,000 people in the US die of a C. diff infection every year and many more around the world. So it really is a, a big public health issue uh, that needs to be combated. And uh, it is being combated by FMT. So how does it work? Well, if you find yourself with a C. diff infection, it usually occurs in, in older people, uh, it causes really horrible symptoms such as chronic diarrhea and intestinal bleeding and an awful kind of bowel pain as well. Um, and the usual treatment is uh, an antibiotic, uh, but that only works some of the time. Uh, around 30% of the time. So if you find that this infection is recurrent and it comes back three times after three different uh, treatments of antibiotics, uh, you become eligible, in the States at least at the moment, for a fecal microbiome transplant. And this involves uh, you getting a, a transplant of a healthy stool sample from a healthy individual, um, which is inserted into your own uh, intestine. And this is remarkably effective. Uh, it works in about 95% of people in um, clearing the, the infection and clearing the symptoms of C. diff infection. 
And because of its remarkable success in C. diff infections, FMT has now been trialed in a number of different conditions from inflammatory bowel disease to obesity and even controversially in certain brain disorders. But at the moment, as it stands, FMT is only recommended in a clinical setting for recurrent C. diff infection. However, after this was discovered in around 2013, one of the big roadblocks into getting faecal transplants off the ground as proper treatments was the access to healthy stool samples. So this is where OpenBione came in, a non-profit company set up in Boston, which aimed to store and screen and bank healthy stool samples so that they could be sent out and used by doctors all across the United States for faecal transplants for C. diff infection patients. I recently caught up with Dr. Majdi Osman, who is the clinical program director at OpenBiome. Majdi is a medical doctor by training and also has experience in public health. And his role at OpenBiome is to oversee the clinical programs that they run and make sure that they are adhering to clinical guidelines and practices as set out in the United States. He's also interested in conducting research of FMT in other disease states as well. I spoke to Majdi about the evolution of faecal transplants over the last number of years and about recent safety concerns after there was a report of one death in a man who'd recently got a faecal transplant. I also spoke to him about the eligibility for someone becoming a stool donor and about the different complexities and fascinating insights into this evolving and really interesting field of faecal transplants. So, so open by, you know, as you said, we're, we're a nonprofit. Um, and what we do basically is uh, provide fecal transplant treatments for physicians who are uh, using it to treat patients with C. difficile infection. Um, the whole reason we started was because um, one of the, a, a cousin of one of our co-founders, uh, who was a young guy in his early 20s, had a simple gallbladder surgery, uh, developed C. difficile infection after that and was on antibiotics for months and months um, and continuing to have re relapses. Um, and so, you know, this is before open biome and um, he uh, eventually, you know, was trying to seek a fecal transplant and was having to wait six months, was gonna have to drive from Boston down to New York. Um, and so unfortunately he decided to take matters into his own hands and found a friend and got a stool sample and performed the FMT himself. And so, you know, hearing that, that story, um, it's, it's not a, a way that any patient should be having to seek out a treatment that, um, you know, has uh, been uh, recommended in, in guidelines for the management of C. difficile infection. And, um, you know, one of the challenges for clinicians who are looking to do an FMT was that they would have to go and find a, a donor. They would have to process the material themselves. They would have to screen the donor um, and then do the treatment um, uh, uh, at that time. And so it was a really complicated process for a clinician to do that. So what we do at Open Biome is uh, basically take all of that donor screening and processing of stool samples and distribution out of the hands of clinicians, um, a bit like a, a blood bank, but for stool. Um, and so uh, that's kind of where we started. And we initially thought this was going to be a sort of small, um, you know, project. We, we started out of, out of a lab at MIT, um, Eric Armslab and uh, outgrew that very quickly. Um, one hospital after another was was calling us up and asking uh, for treatments, and 
now after nearly five years, we work with about a thousand hospitals across the US, um, have delivered over 55,000 treatments. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, we, I think we are probably the, the largest nonprofit still bank in the world, uh, as far as we're aware. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, beyond C. difficile infection, um, the, we also provide these treatments for the purposes of research or other um, clinical uh, indications as well. So people running blood banks, you know, you have to be very careful about screening patients. And this, this is done with really kind of rigorous protocols. And I know you have even more rigorous protocols for, for your stool banks. So tell us maybe a little bit about the kind of responsibilities and, and the difficulties about managing that clinically uh, and, and making sure that you have only the kind of safest donors. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, you know, our, our priority every day, you know, combined is, is safety. And so, you know, we always kind of frame it like the, the granny test, basically, you know, would we be comfortable if, uh, you know, heaven forbid, our grandma needed a, a, an FMT and had C. difficile infection? Uh, is everything that we're doing up to the standard that we would expect for a family member? Um, and so, you know, yes, we, we've, we've grown um, uh, to support hospitals across the US. Um, and, you know, we, we developed our, our screening methods and all of our processes um, with, you know, a, 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 an independent sort of clinical advisory board really to, to help provide us um, input um, and to come to a consensus where there was no or a lack of evidence in terms of how we should be thinking about things. Um, because this is still a very early, um, you know, young field. And, and so, you know, working with clinicians, with, with other scientists and patients as well on how we build safety um, throughout every, each uh, step of the process. And so, you know, our, our, it all starts with donor screening. Um, and so if a, if a donor wants to kind of become a, a stool donor for open biome, they have to go through quite a rigorous screening process. Um, of around 200 or so clinical questions administered by a, a clinician um, and an, a, a clinical examination, um, as well as stool and blood and nasal swabs as well. And, um, you know, overall, the pass rate is just under 3%. Um, and so it really kind of starts from there. And I think the other piece that we often don't talk about in this space is, is sort of the, the manufacturing and how it should all be done in a, in a dedicated lab. And and that's often really hard for hospitals that are running their own FMT programs to do. Um, and so, you know, from, from beginning to end, um, the goal is to make sure that um, we are reducing risk as much as possible. Um, and then, you know, our role as well at OpenBiome, we have folks report to us um, at all the clinical outcomes from, from each treatment, um, including any sort of adverse events. And so we, we, we play a role in, in bringing together all of that data uh, and working with FDA, the, the regulatory authority in the US, on um, making sure that any safety signals are detected and we can change the, the, the program of donor screening or material manufacturing um, or advice to clinicians in terms of how to use the treatment. So, so yeah, it comes with you know, a lot of responsibility and um, you know, we take that really seriously. And um, I think you know, being a nonprofit, you know, we, we uh, we want to make sure that we are providing, you know, as objective, uh, sort of transparent information to, to folks as well, um, not only to discuss sort of the, the benefits potentially of FMT, but also the risks and the alternatives so that patients before they get a treatment are really fully informed about, 
you know what the um, what we know about it and what we don't know as well. Three percent is is crazy. I, I can't remember what the the figure is for blood donors anyway, but I mean the criteria for donating blood is is much looser than that. So it seems like uh, stool donors are, are very strict. I remember I was living in Boston before I knew you, and I had seen uh, Open Biome appealing for donors, but maybe I wouldn't pass that. I'm not too sure. What what kind of things, you know, would a healthy person like me not pass that criteria on? The only thing I could think of was I have an allergy to tree nuts, almonds and cashews. Is that the kind of thing that I might might be screened out on? Yeah, unfortunately, that would that would probably be something we'd screen out on. Um, so, you know, probably the two buckets, really. There's the infectious diseases, which... Um, you know, we evaluate the risk of the donor and then obviously test the material. Um, but, you know, there's also the microbiome mediated diseases. Yeah. And, you know, at this stage, we've, we've cast the net very wide. Um, even if the data out there is, is uh, you know, uh, maybe just a, an association rather than anything pointing to a, a causal relationship. Mm. Um, and so we exclude on a whole wide range of factors. So, you know, asthma, allergies, uh, ATP, uh, uh, obesity, um, all of the things that we're sort of exploring right now. And so that, you know, there may be opportunities later down the line to sort of uh, rationalize some of those um, exclusion criteria. Um, but for now, yeah, we, we cast the net very wide. And so at the end of the day, these donors are, are <laughs> very healthy. Um, I feel very unhealthy when I'm around them. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, don't have sort of any of the exclusion criteria that that um, the rest of the 97% are excluded on. Despite the recent popularity and fascination with faecal transplants, the whole field is relatively new. It was only in 2013 that the seminal research study on faecal transplants was published. For this, a team of doctors in the Netherlands took patients who had recurrent C. diff infection and gave half of them an antibiotic treatment as usual and half of them a faecal transplant. As history shows, the study actually had to be stopped early because the faecal transplant treatment was so successful. Over 90% of patients who received a faecal transplant recovered, whereas only around 30 or 40% recovered who were taking the antibiotics. I asked Majdi about the history of faecal transplants and how we got to that stage of attempting to put stool samples from healthy people into sick people's intestines. We also spoke about the safety of faecal transplants and how this can be assessed in the future. And what more needs to be studied in order to make faecal transplants more successful. In particular, how they are administered, whether it's via nasogastric tube, rectally, or via the infamous poop pills or crapsules. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting story. So. As you say, Rory, you know, the earliest description we have is of this sort of uh, yellow soup that uh, Ji Hong, this Chinese physician, would, would administer to patients uh, who came to him with, with diarrhea or any sort of GI symptoms. Um, and, you know, this was a practice that there are documents of, you know, uh, folks doing this um, in, you know, the uh, sort of 20th century, um, you know, in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, up to even uh, sort of 2000, the early 2000s, um, as a last ditch sort of attempt for patients with C. difficile infection. Um, but really, the, the first sort of um, scientific descriptions of it as a potential therapy uh, were published in the 1950s. So, Dr. Ben Eisenman um, was a, uh, a clinician in the US Navy, um, and he administered uh, FMT to patients with pseudomembranous colitis. And, at that time, it wasn't even known that it was caused by C. difficile infection. Um, 
And so, you know, that was kind of the first description, but nothing really happened uh, for about 50 years, really, um, partly because of this problem around, um, you know, just screening of donors and uh, being able to add, uh, sort of provide enough treatments for a, a clinical trial. Um, I think as well, the C. difficile has become an increasingly important sort of public health problem in the last sort of 20 years or so. And so I think for that reason, there's been interest in exploring it as a, as a therapy, um, which led ultimately to this, this clinical trial in 2013. And I think what then happened after that, there have been about seven uh, randomized controlled trials now that have sort of um, you know, replicated that finding of around 80 to 85% efficacy um, for, for FMT in the context of C. diff when compared to uh, vancomycin or uh, placebo. Um, you know, the scientific side, but then also the regulatory side of things as well, um, in the US at least, enabled uh, clinicians to perform this treatment um, for patients who had failed um, uh, antibiotic therapy in, in C. difficile infection. And so I think those two, those two things, I think then plus the, um, you know, uh, the development of groups like Open Biome uh, to enable access to the treatment, I think the convergence of those three things then sort of enabled the, the uptake of this treatment more broadly. Um, and then obviously we now know a lot more about the microbiome than we did, you know, just 10 years ago. So I think that has also driven interest in this. Um, but yes, talking to, all, you know, older GI docs or infectious disease doctors, you know, they, many of them have stories of, of trying to perform an FMT, right. um, just doing it in the basement of their micro lab and, uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, not, not, not in a necessarily as sophisticated or thorough way as we might imagine uh, is, is done today. But. You wouldn't have wanted to be one of their, their patients. Um, so that is that still the criteria? So you have to have failed vancomycin treatment before you're considered eligible for an FMT for, for C. diff. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And um, it's, it's the, the third re uh, recurrence. So you, you have to have failed antibiotics at least twice um, before you can uh, be considered for uh, a fecal transplant. And I think that makes sense at this stage, you know, given our knowledge around the efficacy and the, the safety of FMT, right. that it's reserved for patients that are really sort of facing that, that, that um, uh, you know, come, come to the sort of end of the road in terms of their options for treatment. Right. And do you think that that would change in the face of growing antimicrobial resistance, you know, giving people vancomycin, you know, over and over and over and, and only then using FMT as a last resort? Um, because it has such a great success rate, do you think that might change and it might kind of move higher up the list in priority of treatments? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I think, you know, at this stage, um, there have been a number of studies now that have uh, demonstrated the, the, the cure rates in, of FMT. I think what, what we need now are more studies that can advise sort of clinical practice. And so, as you say, you know, bringing FMT up earlier in the treatment regimen for C. diff, um, there was a small study published in the New England Journal I think about two years ago, looking at FMT for primary C. difficile infection. Um, but, you know, I think what we need is, as you say, sort of um, different studies to compare, you know, uh, treatment regimens, vancomycin, fidaxomycin, there's now bezlatuximab, um, and working out which of those should be, a, you know, administered. And it may depend on, on the patient as well um, and the, the nature of their C. diff infection too. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions still to be worked out. 
mm. um, before we sort of consider moving FMT up earlier. But that definitely, I think antibiotic resistance is an area that there's a lot of interest beyond C. diff, actually. Yeah, um, of course. Is exploring FMT. I think you're right about kind of expanding on those clinical trials, because even I hadn't realized until about a year ago that that original paper was only based on, I think, 16 patients in the FMT group and 13 in the vancomycin group. I know it was stopped early and they were going to recruit more, but it's interesting there's been, there's been a huge explosion in FMT based on a trial with relatively small number of patients, although it has been uh, been replicated now. So what I want to talk to you about is a lot of people mightn't know about delivery methods of FMT. Um, people have heard about these poop pills or crapsules, but it's also delivered by endoscopy, you know, through the mouth or through the nose, um, or colonoscopy. Um, so are there differences in the delivery methods in terms of its efficacy uh, or why you might go with one, why a clinician might go with one delivery method over the other? Yeah. So, um, so both, you know, in terms of our experience at OpenBiome, but also the findings from uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses of different clinical trials, um, it seems that lower delivery, so via colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy, um, has the highest cure rate uh, compared to upper delivery where it's administered by a nasogastric tube or a prendoscopy. Um, there's also the, the option of these uh, crapsules as well. Um, uh, but overall, it seems like lower delivery has the highest rate, uh, cure rate. Um, but, uh, you know, what's interesting is that may partly be driven by the dose that you can deliver. Um, so there was a, a nice study published by Dina Cow and colleagues uh, about three or four years ago now, uh, where they compared lower delivery to uh, uh, capsule delivery um, and found that there was no significant difference between the two, provided you could get relatively similar uh, amounts of, of stool in, into the treatment. So, um, so that, that might be sort of the underlying cause there. Um, but generally, you know, lower delivery, we see about 80, uh, 81, 82% efficacy rates. Um, for upper delivery, it's about 71%. And then for capsules, we're seeing sort of around 73%, at least our experience at open biome. Um, and uh, I think that's in keeping with, with sort of many of the clinical trials. Right, okay. Um, yeah. Choose your poison, whether you want it as a pill or a, <laughs> a colonoscopy or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So there was a big, widely reported case last year of uh, uh, a man dying uh, following an, an FMT transplant. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't necessarily, well, we do know that the, the infection came from the, the FMT itself. It was uh, an ESBL organism, so it was antibiotic resistant. Uh, and this has kind of led to big discussions about tightening those uh, criteria for safety. Has that changed anything in, in the FMT world uh, from, for open biome or, or for anyone else um, in terms of improving that safety? I know just for the record, FMT is still is extremely safe, you know, and that is one of the first reported cases of a death. Uh, but has that changed uh, practice in the, in the field of FMT? Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, it, as you said, that the case was uh, it was two cases where uh, a patient patients had developed an ESBL infection after receiving an FMT from the same donor. Um, worth flagging that yeah the the donor was uh, uh, the FMT was sourced in a, a hospital based FMT program, so it wasn't um, uh, open biome. Uh, we'd been screening for ESBL um, uh, pretty much from the beginning um, uh, before this event had occurred. Um, but I think what it did speak to, I think, is the need for um, some 
uh, more standardization for the criteria for donor screening. So at the moment, unfortunately, there isn't, um, like you would for blood banking, you know, there's an agreed sort of standard that everyone should adhere to. Um, we, we don't have the same yet for FMT. And so I think one of the things that hopefully, you know, comes out of that experience um, are some, some standard guidelines, not just for groups like Open Biome, but also hospital-based programs um, for, you know, industry groups that are doing trials with these types of products so that everyone's sort of screening for the same thing um, and that nothing is missed. And I think that, you know, is, is sort of the main, uh, you know, one of the learning lessons, I think, from, from, from that, that those unfortunate cases. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, I, I think I, for me, that's, that's the main takeaway. I think it did, you know, uh, it, we, we knew that there was always going to be a, a risk of infectious transmission. Um, and so I think the key thing is making sure that we're screening adequately for those organisms that we are concerned about. Mm. Antibiotic resistant bacteria, certainly high up on the list. Um, and so, you know, I think not only thinking about what we're screening for, but also how we're screening for them as well. Um, and then communicating that to patients really clearly so that they, they know the, the, the risks of, of FMT um, and what has been screened and what hasn't been screened. Despite the amazing success of faecal transplants, it's still not completely clear how or why they work. Most people previously hypothesized that a healthy donor was providing healthy bacteria to be transplanted into the intestines of a sick person who had a dysbiotic or diseased microbiome. And this has led some research groups to try and come up with defined consortia of microorganisms to use as faecal transplants instead of raw stool samples. However, a fascinating new study found that even a sterile faecal transplant was still successful, meaning that even if all the bacteria within the transplant were killed, the treatment still worked, suggesting that the bacteria don't have to be alive in order for the transplant to be successful. One of the other hot topics within the field of faecal transplants is the concept of personalised donors. Certain super donors have been identified, which seem to be the most successful donors for lots of different patients. However, certain patients seem to respond specifically to certain donors and not to others. This has led to the theory of autologous FMT, where you would act as your own donor if you froze a stool sample from when you were healthy to be used later on if you became sick. I spoke to Majdi about these new topics in faecal transplants, about sterile FMTs, self-FMTs, and the possible future of personalised faecal transplants. So the, um, the, the group, uh, it was a group in, from Germany, if I recall correctly, um, they, they did a sterile filtered filtrate, uh, sterile filtrate um, FMT, basically. So they uh, instilled the, the non-microbial component um, into patients. I think it was uh, maybe five patients uh, and they observed a clinical cure uh, in those patients, which is fascinating, I think, and speaks, I think, somewhat to our, uh, our lack of understanding uh, on the mechanism of FMT, even in, in the context of C. diff. Um, is this driven by the bacteria? Is this driven by potentially bacteriophage or fungi or uh, other sort of um, uh, 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 bacterial fragments, other aspects of, of the FMT, which we're still starting to, to learn? So I think. Um, definitely in terms of understanding mechanism, I think that study was really informative in, in expanding that for us. Um, I haven't seen any other studies yet to date that have, have replicated that 
um, finding, but I think it's something that definitely warrants, you know, a, a larger clinical trial to compare sort of the whole community with components of the microbial community to see which is an influences clinical outcomes. Um, I hope someone's working on that study. We we haven't sort of embarked on that yet, um, but I think it would be definitely worth us worth someone doing. Um, I'm sure they are. There are there are approaches, um, you know, of adding sort of ethanol to um, to 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 the stool to sort of um, uh, uh, preserve the spore forming fraction, um, which is being tried at the moment by uh, by some groups, um, which might be sort of another approach to um, you know trying to reduce the uh, the risk of any infectious transmission, which I think is also a really interesting approach. Um, I think the other sort of last approach is sort of thinking about defined microbial communities mm. um, using bacteria sourced from stool from from FMT um, to develop a more sort of rationally derived product. And I think that's I hope the field eventually gets to that stage where where we do have something like that. Um, but you know the way I think about it is it's a little bit like blood in that we have sort of whole blood that can be done as a transfusion. Well, there are components, you know, platelets, plasma, um, and you know, if there's a way for us to synthetically do that as well, then then great too. And so, hopefully, there are a few options for patients um, uh, if if they need to be treated. That's interesting. Yeah, I was gonna that was gonna be my follow-on to talk about the future of these defined consortia as transplants instead, because an FMT is really a quite a crude treatment at the moment. You know, you're just giving essentially a, a stool sample to someone where we haven't figured out what are the components within that uh, that are having the effect. And recently, we've only really focused on the bacterial fraction of that. Whereas you mentioned bacteriophages, you know, viruses that infect bacteria and can kill them and are very specific these might actually play a huge role in uh, in some of the, the treatment response. So although defined bacterial consortia could be interesting, you know, if you grow up different bacteria which are present in the stool uh, and using these as a transplant instead, um, although they could be promising, they might be missing some of those important uh, fractions um, of, of, a, of an FMT which are having the effect. Um, the other interest in the field is what's known as autologous FMT, and that is an FMT and you are your own donor. So the kind of interest in this is that we could all freeze uh, a stool sample from ourselves at our healthy, youngest, you know, liveliest period of life. And then if we get sick later on, if we get C. diff later on because we've been in hospital for a while or, you know, for, for some other uh, disease that FMT hasn't been discovered for yet, uh, we might be our best donor as opposed to getting it from a stranger. Do you think that that could be the future of FMT? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting approach, and um, yeah, so we, we've actually we've got a trial uh, at the moment um, that's looking at this autologous approach to uh, reduce the, the the burden of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, so this is in a in, in a, an elderly population um, who are exposed to antibiotics, um, basically banking their stool and then giving it back to them after their antibiotic course. Um, you could imagine a similar approach being taken in the context of uh, patients who are going to be undergoing, uh, you know, chemotherapy or uh, cancer treatment, um, uh, or potentially, you know, in the context of, of pediatrics, where patients are being, uh, you know, kids are being given antibiotic uh, treatment for an ear infection, perhaps, and then they could receive their 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 gut microbiota after that antibiotic course. Um, you know, so I think 
still very early days in thinking about autologous uh, FMT and, and banking, um, but it, intuitively it, it, it makes sense, but definitely something that needs to be sort of evaluated in, in clinical trials to, to find out where is it useful um, and uh, what are the benefits potentially of, of doing that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting, yeah. Because, you know, the, the idea that you might be your, your own best donor is based on the phenomenon that we do have responders and non-responders in various types of treatments. And so that, as far as I know, exists in FMT as well. There might be donors that are more suited to, to you. Um, maybe you could talk to us about that uh, phenomenon of ideal donors or the future of personalized treatments, you know, knowing that this patient needs this specific donor. And they'll be most suited to them. Yeah, so that's you know I think that there are a few ways of, of sort of thinking about that. You know, what the first approach, as you say, is sort of this personalized um, uh, uh, approach where there's some some sort of rational donor selection for FMT based on uh, some features that you want to repair or restore. Um, and so that's the approach we took in a clinical trial in uh, hepatic encephalopathy. Um, so uh, it's a, a, a sort of late stage complication of liver disease um, that there seems to be associated with the gut microbiome. Um, and so we worked with uh, uh, collaborators at um, uh, Jazz Bajaj and, and colleagues at, uh, in Virginia, um, basically uh, looking at patients with uh, hepatic encephalopathy and identifying where they're, where they're depleted compared to uh, healthy controls, um, and then selected donors who were, had a higher relative abundance of those particular uh, bacteria. Um, and so we then, that, that clinical trial, um, it was a randomized placebo controlled trial, um, but it's a demonstrated positive effect of FMT um, in this population. And so you suggested that maybe a rational approach might be helpful um, in a more personalized way. Um, and more broadly though, you know, in terms of donor effects, we, we haven't seen anything um, in the context of C. diff that suggests there are differences between donors. Um, and we also did a reanalysis of the clinical trials in inflammatory bowel disease um, and found similarly that there doesn't seem to be a, a donor effect from what we've seen. Um, but one of the challenges is if you want to do a trial to compare donors, you're looking at uh, a trial that needs about 200 patients. Right, and okay. so it's really sort of, uh, you know, practically quite difficult to, 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 to disentangle um, donor effects, I think, in a, in, in a sort of real clinical trial setting. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the personalized approach, I think, is really interesting and um, I think, you know, speaks to the potential of, of FMT as a, um, as a treatment, certainly, but also as a discovery tool mm. um, to potentially try and understand mechanisms um, around the microbiome that could then lead as a stepping stone to more rationally defined uh, 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 therapies as well. In preliminary studies, faecal transplants have shown some success in treating other disorders such as inflammatory bowel disease. However, there's a push to move faecal transplants beyond these westernized disorders into a global treatment. One of the research studies that Majdi is involved in is trialing faecal transplants in children who are severely acute malnourished in South Africa and who aren't responding to standard nutritional treatment. I talked to him about rolling out faecal transplants to a global scale to move it away from a westernized approach. 
We also discussed the possibility of faecal transplants being used in the fight against antimicrobial resistance. After COVID-19 or coronavirus, antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, is arguably going to be the biggest public health challenge of our time, because if antibiotics no longer work, we won't be able to fight off normal infections. Therefore, by preserving stool samples right now, which contain microbes which are less antimicrobial resistant than they may be in a few years' time, we may be able to tap into these microbes in the future in order to help tackle antimicrobial resistance. And finally, I spoke to Majdi about moving beyond faecal transplants and looking at transplants from other microbiomes of other parts of the human body. No, I think, I, you know, it's, it's, there's been a sort of rapid uptake of FMT in the US and in, in Europe and Canada, um, but we, you know, haven't seen sort of the same uh, 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 number of clinical trials uh, occurring in, in places like uh, South Asia, Africa, South America. Um, and so, you know, given that FMT seems to be one of those pillars of, of translational microbiome research and given the amount of interest that's going on in the field at the moment, um, that if many places in low middle income countries are to potentially benefit from microbiome derived therapies, then it would make sense for many of those studies to be conducted using sort of local donors um, and to build capacity for that um, so that folks can start to pursue clinical indications that are more relevant to their local setting um, where maybe inflammatory bowel disease isn't that common. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we, one of the things we're interested at Open Biome is, is doing that, sort of building capacity in other places. So we're working with the University of Cape Town in setting up uh, a stool bank there for FMT. Um, and we've got a clinical trial that's ongoing, as you say, um, uh, looking at the um, potential of FMT um, in the context of severe acute malnutrition where children are failing to respond to nutritional therapy. So these are, these are kids that have been on weeks and weeks of nutritional therapy. No other cause for their malnutrition has been found. Um, and building off the, the, the work done by some other groups, including uh, Jeff Gordon, um, to see if FMT can uh, lead to an improvement in their nutritional outcomes. Um, but you know, antibiotic resistance is, is a global problem. And I think there's, you know, real potential there in the context of, um, you know, uh, pan-resistant typhoid, if, if, if that was to develop, or, um, or other antibiotic-resistant bacteria that are more abundant in LMICs, I think could be, could be super interesting. Um, and so part of that, when we're thinking about scaling up FNT, is, is local donor selection as well, that there might be things that are more relevant um, in low-middle-income low setting. And so um, it makes sense for as much sort of of that to be um, developed locally by by researchers in those countries um, so that we're not having to send poop for example or treatments from the US to other places um, yeah, which which wouldn't make sense I think in the yeah. run. Because there are of course global microbiome differences um, yeah. and antimicrobial resistance as you said is you know arguably the biggest global public health issue and it's going to be probably the biggest public health challenge of our time maybe after coronavirus after that's <laughs> died down um so what is the kind of potential for storing stool or stool banks in in combating that you know if if we all stored our stool which is you know less antimicrobial resistance at the moment 
you know, is that going to be beneficial to us in the future? There's, there's a really interesting um, microbiome vault that has been proposed by uh, Maria Dominguez-Bello and, and various others where they want to uh, preserve human-associated microbes in a, a neutral country, you know, kind of like the seed vault that's in Svalbard in, in Norway, um, so that for generations down the line, we can still go back into that bank or that vault to tap into the, the you know, healthier microbiome of our past. Um, could that be applied to AMR? You know, you are a banking stool at the moment, Will we need to kind of tap into that in the future to to try and combat AMR? Do you think? Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, kind of like yeah, going back to sort of older versions of ourselves and and yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We might have to in the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, and I think you know the, the other sort of um, the, the way I often think about it is that you know there is this sort of huge shift right now to uh, the Western sort of ways of living in terms of diet and urbanization, um, social interaction, uh, antibiotic use, all of these things that, um, you know, have, have already occurred in, in many high income countries and um, is happening globally. And, and with that, there, there is a, if you look at the curves for inflammatory bowel disease in India, um, they're kind of 20 to 30 years after the exact same curves that we observed in the US and Europe. And if you think about the, the numbers of people that we're talking about there, that's a really significant burden of, of uh, the population who have inflammatory bowel disease and potentially other autoimmune diseases that might be microbiome mediated. And so I think not just in antibiotic resistance, but you know, these other diseases that non-communicable diseases that could end up putting huge strain on health systems um, globally, I think is, is, is something to, to think about where we're such a seed bank, if, if you like, um, of microbes that have been associated and have co-evolved with us to, um, uh, you know, be sort of selected out um, because of our changes in lifestyle. Um, it would be that would be a great resource, I think, for us to to do some of those, um, develop some of those therapies, definitely. And finally, I want to ask you about moving beyond the F in in fecal microbiome transplants. There was a really interesting study this year, or maybe was it last year? of the first uh, vaginal microbiome transplant. So we know in the microbiome field, the vaginal microbiome is associated with things like preterm birth and uh, urogenital infections. And so there's a big interest in that field. And uh, in this study, it showed that uh, transplanting from healthy donors, just like you would in a, a fecal transplant, able to resolve bacterial vaginosis. So, uh, I don't know if, if Open Biome are planning to be involved in that, but maybe what are your thoughts about that in tapping into the other human microbiomes uh, and using these as transplants for, for other disorders? Yeah, no, that, that paper was super interesting and I think sort of points to the, the potential of the transfer of whole ecologies from, you know, uh, in other parts of the body. And I think, um, you know, in some ways, bacterial vaginosis might be for sort of vaginal microbiome therapies, what C. diff is to the, to the gut um, in terms of it, you know, this uh, condition that's associated with marked dysbiosis um, that seems to be easily resolved or potentially easily resolved by transfer from a healthy individual. Um, and I think that if we are going to scale such an approach of, of VMT or vaginal microbiome therapy, then the, the challenges will be quite similar to what has been faced in scaling up FMT. Um, so, you know, what does it take to select an appropriate donor? 
how do you collect that material? How do you ensure it's viable? And then how do you transfer it? And so, um, you know, Open Bind, we aren't directly working on, on, on FMT, but we are, um, you know, working with other groups to try and sort of transfer some know-how on how to do this kind of stuff at scale, because um, some of the problems are, are quite similar. Well, obviously it's very different um, in, 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 uh, in VMT. Um, so yeah, super interesting. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, going back to sort of the uh, autologous uh, or personalized uh, sort of seed bank uh, themes that we've been touching on, um, definitely, I think if, if we're looking beyond the gut, it would make sense to start to see what changes in um, uh, the microbial ecologies we're observing and, and banking some of those um, to potentially develop therapies in the future. Um, but yeah, super interesting. And beyond, beyond bacterial vaginosis, if you know, this may lead to ways of addressing things like preterm birth or, um, uh, or genital urinary tract infections in pregnancy, um, that could have a huge impact on public health as well. So, so yeah, early days and exciting to see that and uh, hopefully it'll be sort of validated in, in larger studies in the future.